Good morning and welcome. My name is Scott Warner. That's what it says on my notes. And I'm president of the Culinary Historians of Chicago. I welcome you to today's program, and I thank you for venturing out on this gray and grisly January morning. Fortunately, we're able to provide our own sunshine with our two speakers today. To today's program, the legitimacy and legacy of Chinese food in America, and who doesn't like Chinese food? It's so much a part of our life that it's American as apple pie with soy sauce on the side. And who better to present the case for Chinese food than Louisa Chu and Monica Ang, who not only know a thing or two about Chinese food, but a lot more as well. These two are co-hosts of the Chewing Podcast. Uh, beside that, and I'll just read a bit from a bit of their background. Louisa is a Chicago Tribune food and dining reporter. She was born in Hong Kong, raised in Chicago. She lived in Los Angeles and Paris, where she graduated from Le Cordon Bleu. She trained at El Bulli in Spain and cooked in Alaska. Previously, she was a correspondent for Gourmet Magazine and a fixer for a fixer. What is a fixer? Uh, just fixes things that need to be done. She fixes, okay. <laughs> she was a fixer. Oh, good, so it's nothing ominous. She was a fixer for Anthony Bourdain. And Monica Ang is a reporter and for producer for WBEZ Public Radio. Before joining WBEZ, Monica was a food, culture, and watchdog investigative reporter at the Chicago Tribune. Uh, and I did mention that you two co-host the Chew. You did. Chew. Thank you. Scott. Okay. Subscribe today, Chewing Podcast. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Monica said. Well, can you can you repeat that? Again? Oh, sure. It says right up there. Subscribe to the podcast Chewing.xyz <laughs> or wherever you get your podcasts. Great. And. Um, so I was going to say, come on down, but they're already here. Come on down and give us the truth about chop suey. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Thank you so much, Scott and Kathy. And uh, so I'm Louisa. This is Monica. And we really so appreciate you all rushing in. Uh, Monica, unfortunately, has a family um, funeral to get to right after. So, But I promise I will stay. Um, so we're going to do our talk, and then we'll open it up to questions. And then also, Kathy has made recipes, um, historic Chinese recipes, Chinese-American recipes, which you will be able to taste. And like I said, I promise and I'll stick Deb around. Silverstein. Yeah, and Deb. And Deb. So thank you, Kathy and Deb. So thank you all again so much for coming. All right, let's get this chop suey party started. Um, I'm just going to give you a brief history of uh, Chinese food in America. Then we're going to argue or take questions. We don't argue. Okay. We discuss. So uh, I don't know how to use these things so well. Oh, let's see if this works. Ta-da. Okay. So early Chinese American food. What do you think that was? Sulan Moy. I saw her at um, Chinese American Museum of Chicago presentation where, yay, where they uh, showed us what, um, so the earliest folks came over here. Uh, one of my great-great-grandfathers to build the railroad. And Mine so too. what were they great eating? Great-grandfathers, yeah. Uh, they, uh, okay, they smoked some opium, but they also had uh, vegetables, preserved meats, dried shrimp, uh, dried fish, other shellfish. Um, and in fact, uh, food was so important that the Chinese cooks were paid more than the unskilled workers, and it was also seen as medicine. So if you can't all read the giant block of text, I promise that we'll put it on our website at chewing.xyz, so you don't need to read all of this tiny print and try to take notes at the right. same time. And you know, one great thing that kept the Chinese he um, healthy is what did they do to their water? Oil. 
They boiled it. And so they were getting sick a lot less often than, let's say, the Irish uh, railroad workers. So, um, and that, that program at the museum was fantastic because they actually cooked meals that they would have had. Um, and then they had a display of all the different things. They had dried scallops and the tea leaves and the beans. Um, and then lap chong and the shiitake mushrooms. It was super cool. Go to the museum today. Um, and then this would have been like the walks where they were uh, cooking stuff. And so that was Chinese food for Chinese people to the best they could uh, put together in the United States. Um, but then they started um, having Chinatowns where, that would be adjacent to uh, Caucasian uh, citizens, and so they had to decide, okay, how are we going to work this? Are we going to be cooking Chinese food for Chinese people, or should we also um, make a good business out of it? So um, this was from 1903, I believe. I love, look at these letters on Clark Street. Um, I, don't, I don't know what is racist anymore and what is just the time, but it looks kind of racist today. <laughs> um, but this was when Joy, what's, what's it called, King Joy Low, uh, one of the first restaurants, fancy restaurants, three-story restaurants was opening in Chicago. And at the same time, the Tribune was writing diatribes about how evil the Chinese are and how dangerous these restaurants were. They'd also have these like huge spreads about how this is going to be a great place. So it was really hard to figure out. No, I did a whole Actually, piece. Actually, still happening in the Tribune, so in Right, any case, back and yeah, forth, yeah. Exactly. They so hate the Chinese workers, but change. they love the Chinese food. <laughs> right. um, so the Chinese would find ways to save money. That's just what we do, right? Okay, hire- It is an immigrant society thing, it's not only Chinese. And I should right. point out that while I am actually Chinese, Monica is Chinese. very diverse, yeah. So okay. in, of herself, she's Chinese, Puerto Rican, and Peruvian. about this. Okay, so we try to find ways Keep to save going. money. Um, so they often hire their family. Louisa always claimed she was frying foods at four, eight, I, four years old or something. Right, exactly. It was not frying foods. My very first job in our Chinese American chop suey restaurant was four years old, folding takeout menu. Menus. So, but so, then moved on to working the deep fryer. So there were very low wages, and the unions were pretty PO'd about that. Um, and so they claimed that they tried to unionize them. Uh, but this lovely Tribune story says, you know, that they were trying to unionize the Chinese workers. Are you fellows organized? Asked Jay Levine. No savvy was the blunt reply. I mean, they're constantly using like, here's how the Chinese people talk. In any case. They said they wanted to unionize them, and then they decided that they weren't going to unionize non-citizens. And do you know why that's a problem for Chinese? Because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, we couldn't become citizens. We could never naturalize. What is it, until 1943, was it? 44, actually. 44. Yeah, it was a woman, a 15-year-old girl, who was the first person to be naturalized here in Chicago. Uh, She actually ended up moving to Michigan, just died a couple of years ago. But we are union, pro-union, I just got to say, as union organizers. I'm a steward uh, at SAG-AFTRA yeah, exactly. and, and she's I am, union I am here, a so. union organizer so we like the, the Tribune. unions, just not so, when they're right. like kicking down the Chinese. Right. Okay. So, Anybody, um, not just Chinese. So that led to a period right around this time. I did a podcast for, um, well, for our podcast, but also for the Proof podcast, the America's Test Kitchen podcast about how basically unions try to get rid of all Chinese restaurants across America by passing legislation that would say, uh, they're like, okay, we can't get you in our union, now we're just gonna try to kill you. So they tried to um, pass legislation across the country saying that no non-citizens could get restaurant licenses. And so what does that mean for Chinese people? No more Chinese restaurants. In fact, there was an alderman in Chicago who said, it's worth losing these chop suey restaurants. And then they also started, Tribune started smearing them. There was a huge investigation where the Tribune said that basically 
Um, young girls were being seduced um, by the dreamy music in Chinese cafes because, uh, which this will, is a long time ago in the Tribune, which like early 1900s. Inevitably, not it says the dreamy music will inevitably lure them in and make them into the slave wives of Chinamen. So it was just like crazy that they thought like if your daughter goes in there, forget it, she is gonna like marry this guy and become a slave wife forever. Right. Like what happened to my Well, mom. that's an originally old story. Monica did do a story a couple of years ago about basically why Chinese restaurants almost went almost went extinct. And you can read that on the Tribune yeah, website. It was in the Tribune. I, I milked that story like crazy. So the podcast right. and proof. Anyway, but then they said, Okay, we gotta do something to stay popular. Oh, and this I just thought was a very interesting quick diversion. In 1904, there was an African-American couple that were denied service in a Chinese restaurant in Wei Ying Lo. And so they sued. They said, you can't keep me out of this restaurant. And so there was already inter-ethnic tension at these restaurants. And actually, my Aunt Joan told me that that was the case um, when she had a place in South Shore, even into the 50s, which is you know, very sad. She was very upset that she felt like sometimes she had to do things that were against her own morals. But so, I should say that now there is actually a very strong and long tradition of uh, black Chicagoans who are some of the biggest supporters of Chinese American restaurants in Chicago and across the country. Yeah, in fact, so, so my Auntie Joan had the South Shore restaurant, but then she had House of Ang at the top of the Del Prado Hotel for many years at 53rd in the lake. And that was like, you know, all of, um, tons of my African-American friends were like, we used to spend all of our time there. In fact, the head of the Union League um, famously spent time there and, and held court. So interesting, interesting nexuses of African-American and Chinese food, obviously Jewish and Chinese food. So the Tribune, you know, was like, chop suey fat is growing. Chicago's appetite is becoming cultivated to this Chinese dish of mystery. So uh, in this was, I believe, 1908. Um, it was just, they were talking about like all the Chinese restaurants that were on Randolph Street and State Street, and they were just popping up everywhere. Sorry, 1903. And here was one of the early menus that they talked about. Chop suey and rice, mugu chop suey, fuyang. And at least everyone knows what fried chicken means. The, but you know, that fried chicken thing is really interesting because even from the beginning, they're like, okay, we gotta have something for the people who think that chop suey's too weird. And that was the beginning in 1903 of these menus that were both Chinese and American menus that you pretty much had to have. By 1908, it's all going downhill. The chop suey trade is waning. The Chinese restaurant owners are like losing it, they're saying. And so I don't know if that was the Tribune making stuff up. I mean, so they noticed there was a, there was a meeting at the On Liang, which was one of the biggest merchants associations. And they're like, what are we going to do? Well, the China, oh, I thought this was funny. It was something called Ching Chow. It was like, what the hell? This is like some sort of cartoon in the Tribune. So the You're Chinese, getting an insight into Monica's <laughs> research process here. ADD. A lot, okay. yeah, I exactly. see stuff and a lot of free-flowing okay. thought. <laughs> so the Chinese decided to introduce music, first canned music, and then people were going to start dancing in these places. Did you guys know that Chinese restaurants were associated with close dancing? And that was another reason they tried to um, shut them down. There was something called Dine and Dances, and we'll get to a really big one in West Garfield Park. A very later. personally important one. Um, but at the Tease. same time, I believe this is 1914, and look what's on the Boulevard cafeteria menu on Wednesday. 
special boulevard chop suey. So American cafeterias were so embracing this that they had um, special boulevard chop suey made of pork tenderloin and celery and nothing else. And this Yum. is actually something very important to note because when we were discussing uh, planning this talk as well as the recipes you're going to be tasting, I have to say that Monica sent one of the common chop suey recipes that you'll see. A lot of them are kind of what are considered some of the Chinese-style chop suey, like the julienne, thin-sliced meats, bamboo shoots, you know, and bean sprouts, which is kind of considered a Chinese-style what actually there is also outside of Chicago, much more common, is a Chicago-style chop suey. I haven't been able to figure out exactly the origin, but we were discussing this last night. And so while Monica had given Kathy a recipe with the bean sprouts, I said, you know, my favorite actually was this old-fashioned-style chop suey, the kind that I grew up with that in our restaurant was just called the chop suey which was chunks of pork and celery and some onion. And then Monica and I were discussing this last night. She pointed out the special boulevard-style chop suey, which we think relates to... I don't know what. The Columbian Exposition. The Columbian Exposition, right. Yes. This is because... Oh, uh, well, no, Boulevard is the name of the cafeteria. No, no, I know. But you were saying that one of the reasons why chop suey was right. also like a sign of very, you know, international cosmopolitan. cosmopolitan. Yeah. After the World's Fair of 1893, a lot of Chicagoans thought, oh, I've tasted ethnic food. Mm -hmm. And so spaghetti... From around the world. Yes. Spaghetti, chili con carne, yeah. and, um, and chop suey would start showing up on these cafeteria menus. Chicago became famous for this cafeteria style of food at the turn of the century, which was largely to, and I'm digressing, to serve all the women who'd flooded into the loop as workers suddenly. They couldn't go to the taverns for the free lunches that all the guys went to, so they, they created a few different types of restaurants, see a Curious City story later this month, that would uh, cater to those women at the turn of the century, and they're like, like everyone's like, go to the cafeterias, don't buy a cat in the bag. In other words, don't order from a menu. You want to see your food like a Valois. Okay, so that's and a digression. And if you haven't noticed already now, Monica's tone is a little bit dismissive of chop suey and a lot of the early Okay, Chinese we're going to get American to that, foods. but let's right. do it in order. Why right. are they proponents? Okay, so when I talk about dining and dances, there was a place in West Garfield Park. It used to be called Dance Land. In 1923, my great-grandfather Joe Eng bought it, and he called it the Golden Pumpkin. What? That's a huge deal. Wait, what? The Monica? largest and most beautiful Chinese cafe in the world. What? Up on that stage, there was Thelma Terry and her Playboys. Not oh, Thelma Terry. Yeah, I could play you some music. I should have brought. Wait, I so where was this about? This was on Jackson Boulevard. It I was believe. like, so it was Jackson near the park. So that when that whole area it was, was, there was like, there's a whole entertainment area yeah. around there. Um, wherever the streetcar went, there would and and another and if there was an intersection of um, transportation, entertainment centers would build up. So we recently got a question on Curiosity: What's up with Lawrence and Broadway? Why all the places there? Well, there was very important. There was very important transportation there. So you got the Green Mill, you got the Aragon, the Riviera, uptown. Um, so this is, can I just point out again, a huge deal that at that time, which was, um, there was a lot of racism, there was a lot of exclusion, literally exclusion. The fact that your, was it your great-grandfather? Yeah, Joang. Who was able to buy this huge business and run it, and it was... The hotspot. It was the cat's pajamas, the cat's meow. Um, I don't know what else cat-related. But anyway, it was a big deal. And so to really think about like the fact that these existed in such an early stage in our history here in Chicago is fascinating. So, and it was one of the places where you'd see you know, single women could go on dates. What? They were called chop suey dates. Oh, my goodness. And they could dance. I mean, it really was kind of seen as bohemian. 
And that was the outside of it. And if you could see, like, in tiny letters, oh, jeepers, what have I done? Um, dying and dance, uh, it says under there, you know, chop suey. So again, while there's really been a sort of recent history of dismissiveness when it comes to chop suey and Chinese-American restaurants, I've often said that these were really the places, these were like the luxury steakhouse and the places that people took people to go. It was a big deal. Okay, so while we're in, while we're in the 1920s and 30s, I'll just jump to this real quickly. Oh, Murder. Done. Okay, so in the 30s, while my family had their empire in West Garfield Park, one September day, a guy walks into our restaurant called the uh, Paradise Inn, and he says, where's the owner? And a uh, guy said, over there. And he goes, pew, 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 kills my great uncle John, and then allegedly, according to the Tribune, says, where's Harry, my grandfather? And then he like announces, I will go kill Harry now. Like, what killer does that, frankly? Uh, but he did kill my, um, my uncle John, and we would go to the cemetery. All, most of the, a lot of the Chinese are buried in Mount Auburn Cemetery in Stickney. And whenever we'd go to Uncle John's grave, they'd say, oh, Uncle John was murdered in the restaurant. And then they tried to get your grandpa. All right, let's do our three bows and let's go to the next one. And finally I said, well, what the heck? Why were they trying to kill him? And what I found out finally by doing this story where people asked what was up with Chinese gangs is that we had a restaurant called the Paradise Inn one block away from a restaurant called the New Paradise Inn. And there was a rule that if someone's got a restaurant that's doing really well, you do not open up another Chinese restaurant nearby. So apparently- And again, not just Chinese restaurants, but it's just kind of one of those things. But the, Well, yes, I don't think they yeah. always kill the guy. So, so what they I'm did surprised. was this guy was an Un Leong member, so there are two big tongs, two big gangs, and you can read my story about those. And he was an This Un was on WBEZ, the story. Yeah. yeah. He was an On Leung member, and so he said, um, hey, boss of On Leung, this guy opened up this restaurant right near me, and you got to do something about it. So they went to my grandpa and Uncle jo great Uncle John, hey, what the heck, what are you doing? And they apparently, according to Uncle George, were like, who cares? We're staying here. You're not going to scare us. And so then they sent the guy in to kill him. So I said, okay, so, well, then why didn't they, they, they missed Harry that one day, apparently, so, they, so someone said, Harry's at the restaurant downtown, so killer goes downtown, goes downtown, and then someone calls Harry, says, get out of the restaurant, and then the Wabash Bridge goes up, and the killer is delayed, and Harry escapes in time, okay, well, he escaped that day, and every time those bridges are delaying me, I'm always like, I don't care, I wouldn't be here if those bridges hadn't gone up. Anyway, so... So why didn't they kill him the next day? Well, apparently an An Leong member said, look, we won't kill you if you join An Leong. I think it was like $50,000 he had to pay to pay off the killers and get protection for the whole family. AKA protection money. Which means he got to stay alive and then my dad got to be born and then I got to be born. So that's how that worked. But, but Chinese restaurants and uh, that was the An Leong building, now it's the Pui Tok Center. They, they're serious business. And that was the Tribune article, Hunt Two Chinese for Questioning in Cafe Sling. And then all these people got to be born, um, including my dad, who's the cute one, second from the left, second from there. And uh, then I got to be born. So Uncle George there at the top, he was the one who finally squealed on what happened. Harry, my grandpa, that's my papa, my um, grandma, and then all the kids down there.
Those two ran the, um, the House of Ang, the Del Prado Hotel, those two at the top, Uncle George and Auntie Joni. Anyway, back to the slideshow. Dun, 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 so dun. if it's not clear, Monica's family, I often like to say, was this dynasty of Chinese American restaurants here in Chicago. And if you look up photos of uh, the old House of Ang, which there's just a few architectural details up, but most specifically, we we're gonna see a little bit later, I'm sure, Ho Sai Gai and you'll see color photographs, postcards. It, it, there was nothing else like it in the world and nothing else like it since, until possibly coming in the future, but that's more for later. Okay, but so this was a 1920s dance hall and chop suey restaurant. What happened pumpkin, in 1929, right? anybody remember? That's right, Joe lost everything. Lost all his restaurants. He had the Hosei Guy Chicken Shop. He had Paradise Inn. He lost all his restaurants in 29. He sent his daughters selling the tea that they had left over door to door to try to like make up their money. By 32, he had enough money to open on the first floor of, I believe, 23 West Randolph, basically where Block 37, no, where Daily Plaza is yeah. now. So 75 to 85 West Randolph. Henrici's was right over here, or Henrici's. And he opened and then eventually had enough money to buy more floors and have four dining rooms. Hosai Gai, some people say it means Great Earth. Some people say it means other things. There are different interpretations. Oh, yeah, no, literally it means Ho means good. Saigai means world. So it means like good world good or world. good earth. Right. And Harry, my grandpa, who was Joe's son, he, uh, he was so happy that he had wrestled this away from his half-sisters, that's a whole other story, that he got white way signs to say, we're putting up a new sign. And guess what? Now it's going to be called Harry Yang's Hosai Guy. And so at night, you could see, like, basically that uh, he got it from his sisters, and they're yeah. very mad. And a little bit of patriarchy was... happening there, but that's, it is a whole other story. But not surprisingly, again, not only your family and not only Chinese. But... Apparently, Mayor Daly said to him, he said, he said uh, Richard Jay, he said, hey, you want to become the head of the Randolph Street Merchants Association? And, um, and he was for a while. So. And, but while this restaurant was really spectacular, it was part of the context in Chicago at the time where, as Monica was mentioning, that there were all of these lunchrooms in the loop, and so many of them were chop suey places because they were places that had terrific food. Yeah. Sorry, sorry. I think okay, we're safe. Okay, so what can we're you tell from this menu? There are a few <laughs> things. Someone, some smarty pants pointed it out to me, but maybe you won't notice. September 23rd. 3rd, 1933. 33. Apparently, that was right before they lifted prohibition. But do you see what's in the corner here? Cabernet, champagne. What is that? And then, what are, Port, Riesling, that Muscatel, yeah. Budweiser, and beer. Blue Ribbon, Schlitz. So I'm not sure how he was able to sell liquor before prohibition was officially lifted. Well, what? But when, no, specifically, and I think actually, so I have often said that Monica sometimes has a little bit of a surprising, even though she is one of the reporters in Curiosity, a surprising lack of curiosity, it seems, when it comes to really talking about her family restaurant dynasty. No more and because No, because a lot of it actually relied on alcohol and Prostitution and gambling. There you okay, go. exactly. So <laughs> uh, that's a whole other story. Okay, right. but so what do you see? This is like allegedly a Chinese restaurant, and what portion of the menu is Chinese, right? Like one third. The rest is the special deluxe dinner where you can get a potage a l'anglaise or celery hearts. I'm doing a story about like why celery, just like a stick of celery, was such a big deal as an appetizer in Chicago for so long. But if you get to choose between like a celery heart or a shrimp cocktail, what's the, 
what's the choice? Like one because costs one cent it's not one surprising. costs 20 bucks. Right, exactly. You know? And it's not surprising because we see like a lot of the fancier restaurants here in Chicago now are like steakhouses in Italian or steakhouses in French, you know? And so it's all about doing business. It's all about, yeah, pleasing the folks. But do you see something here? Do you see like a, an iconic Chinese restaurant item missing from this side? 1933, we had not gotten egg rolls yet in Chicago. What? No way. Apparently, they were, they were already germinating in New York, but those chubby egg rolls that we know today as the Cantonese-style egg rolls had not arrived yet. Uh, later, Hosei Guy would be famous for its egg rolls, but it did not have them yet in 33. And we actually have a tasting today of Chicago-style egg rolls with peanut butter. Yeah, yeah. And I had done a story. Secret ingredient. If you have peanut exactly. allergy, watch out. About uh, why do Chicago egg rolls taste like peanut butter? So, but okay, this was a yes. later Hosei Guy menu. I still don't see um, egg rolls, but I can't, I'm not sure what year this from. They may be but a secret like, item. But you see, Joe Eng's special warmane was still up there. So uh, apparently my great grandpa was still alive. So it was probably pretty early on. This was, you know, he, he got this uh, designer called Arthur Fanslow who designed a lot of the dining rooms that he would put in upstairs, um, and they were pretty snazzy. Uh, Spectacular. I, can I, can I mean, I this so this is the kind of design they did. They had all these different themed rooms. It was pretty. Did a lot of Chinese work at Hosei Guy? Oh, yeah. Mostly all Chinese. Mostly okay. all Chinese. Because, uh, you know, they make a living on restaurant, mostly mm-hmm. being a Chinese. That's the only way all grocery store. Uh, this is what we used to supply. I used to work here. Oh, wow. Kong you know, was supply all side guy too. Oh. And we delivered bean sprouts there. Bean sprouts. And so where would Chinese people go out to eat? Where could you find decent Chinese food? To tell you the truth, most of the time that the American people patroning, patroning the Chinese restaurant. Right. Where would you go if you wanted something? Gui is uh, next to the firehouse. Okay. And uh, that's where we go. I And Siam once in a while. Well, okay. You know. okay, so, so can you was, unpack that? that so was that friendly. was from our current um, episode of Chewing, and it was an interview that Monica had done with Raymond Lee, who Who's is Lana the introduced me to. namesake of the Chinatown uh, Museum, which is housed in the old Guangyik Department or grocery store. Has anyone ever go besides me, the old Guangyi China, uh, Chinese store in Chinatown? So, so he it was. To it. He said he worked at Wang Yik. I didn't even hear that. Wang Yik, yeah. Guang I think it was like Q U. And anyway, we'll look it up. Uh, and we actually have that. Uh, you can listen to that more in depth uh, on our website too. So it was one of the only uh, grocery stores, and really it was more of like a merchant house. And one of my earliest memories was going in there as, uh, you know, this is maybe three, four years old, and one of my biggest treats was they would open up these big containers, these like big metal or ceramic cauldrons filled to the top to the brim with dried salted shrimp. And one of my treats was I was able to stick my hand all into Introduce bacteria. And and, and they were cured, and actually probably was my little kid hand was maybe the cleanest thing that goes in there. (laughs) But um, And pull out a dried salted shrimp is one of my treats. And that's all there was at that time. It was really just the one place. And we're talking about, at this point, it was the late 60s, early 70s. And um, now, of course, we've got a ton of grocery stores all around, not only in Chinatown, but, um, but so what a long way we have come. And you can listen to the whole interview online. 
So this is just a different view of Randolph, so you could see it in, in perspective with uh, Henrici's and an Italian spaghetti place on the corner. Uh, given those cars, what year do you think this is? 60s? Yeah, it's hard there for me to tell. Pickup, looks like a lot of pickup trucks. All Do right. you know, or is that just your fishing? Uh, no, I was thinking like 50s, 60s. Okay. That was just, here's, here's another one of the dining rooms at Hosei Guy, uh, 75 West Randolph. Um, okay, so the Tribune, I'm not sure. Like, I know what the ethics were when I was there and maybe when Louis was there, but I think that oh, they I'm had... Oh, I'm still there. They, <laughs> and I know for I sure what the they had are. some columnists paid off because in the 60s, no, 50s, they had this column about, and it was about my, my grandpa. I don't know. Do you guys want me to read a bit of it? Or can you? Well, what's the problem that you have with this? <laughs> it seems like he paid them to write nice stuff about him because there's like no freaking point to this. Wait, um, so you're, are you saying that you don't believe that this columnist liked the food at your grandfather's No, I think restaurant? she did. But like, for me, it's always, well, what's the peg? Why are we writing about this? Well, she just happened Why to... are we writing about things anyway? No, usually it's usually because it's timely. Like, because and there's a because... news event that happened. That, anyway, so she says, no, no, hold on time, one second. Hold on one second. We don't write about things that, oh, you know, in a positive light. And, you know, for no reason. It's like, usually it's because, for example, right now, it's coming to be uh, Lunar New Year next right. week. And if a restaurant's There's new, no obvious peg is so, what I'm saying. Okay. Um, okay. So basically, she, you know, she's talking about, okay, first time Harry Yang ever heard of chop suey. He was on the boat coming to, his, to this country from his native Canton. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Then as a youngster helping his father Joe Ang at the old Golden Pumpkin restaurant on Madison Street, Harry learned more about his, quote, native dish, which was considered the she-she order among the 1920s razzmatazz set. Oh, right. I love that writing. Yeah. Um, anyway, so now he has that native dish to, to thank for House of Ang Orchid. I didn't even know he had a restaurant called Orchid. Hosei Guy and the South Pacific. South Pacific was across the street. Next to the Oriental Theater. One of the earliest tiki bar restaurants, right? Or one of the biggest. I don't know if it was right. one of the earliest, and we'll but one of the biggest. we'll get to that craze. Now, Louisa, you speak um, some Cantonese. Do, and does any of the transliteration... speak Cantonese. Does, does any, <laughs> speak does, some Cantonese. No, does any of this transliteration make any sense to you? Sengku set daoi marheng gao. I am not sure. I did look... Monica had posted this on Facebook, and it is, you know, it is a little bit different different and difficult, but uh, I'll look at that again, but let's move on rather than trying to figure out what the transliteration yeah, like, was. Yeah, I'm just wondering, are those in any way more... Or anybody... Hey, we've got some Cantonese speakers. Do any of these appear to be more authentic Cantonese dishes that they're talking about? Okay, here's a problem that I have, again, with the word authentic. Okay, and we've talked someone... about this before, is that authenticity is such a loaded word. Word, and is it's it traditional? Totally yeah. You know, authenticity. Is it something any Cantonese would have eaten <clears throat> before leaving? I, I, I don't know. Um, but I do love that they talk about how he has this recipe for cooking Chinese rice where you have to soak it for more than half an hour. Is everyone, is, how, who still soaks their rice? We don't a lot now because it's different okay. processing. Yeah. And you know, but the thing is, is actually, is that. We used to get rice that was much dirtier. We well, have just and clean the it for sure. And also yeah. then the processing of it, of removing the, because of course, I think we all know that the white rice kernel that we get is not actually what grows. And so the kind of processing, like I said, back in the day when I was washing the rice back in the 60s and 70s, you know, it was a lot more washing and then you don't Taking need to necessarily- Taking out stones and junk. Yeah, exactly. You don't need to soak it as much now. You can pretty much now just maybe rinse it and then uh, put it right in the rice cooker. And, and if it's prop- enriched, yeah. they say don't do that because then you get rid of the enrichment yeah. if you want it. Okay, this is just a fun matchbook that I bought. American Chinese food. 
there's um, a ton of this stuff on eBay, which is fascinating because your family has like troves of it, well, treasure troves. I was I also put this on Facebook to try to get an idea of when folks thought this hotel guide to restaurants came out. Because guess what? Hosai Guy has egg rolls at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, Henry Cheese is still around. It's certainly, certainly pre-62 when they had to like raise the whole block. And egg for rolls the daily for 85 cents? Yeah. And I'm guessing what you think maybe so like 50s? one or two? What, what, which are you, is, what are you folks thinking? Old Heidelberg was still around. Which is pretty amazing because when you think about it, if this is for one or two, the prices don't seem to have gone up like that much actually for Chinese food. And I think a lot of that expectation is one of the things that has continued to this day. Okay, this is just to show that Chinese um, leaders, so Gerald Moy, who was the mayor of Chinatown, that's usually the head of what's called, um, is it always the, the, the mayor of Chinatown, is it always the head of Zhonghua, Sulan? Or is it like different leaders? Oh, head of On Liang. But then when On Liang kind of like got knocked down by the feds, anyway. But the, so there's, there's usually a Chinese leader who's also, you know, very connected with Chicago politics. And that was, um, you know, even in 1939, that was important. And then there's just more kooky ads that my, my grandpa put out. Um, the female of this species is more tender than the male. So he was like, he was big into marketing. Like, we've got female lobsters. Come on down to the House of Ang. Now, this House of Ang was the one right by, um, this was right by the Playboy Club. And so what was happening at the Playboy Club? Lines out the door. Well, I think, yeah, maybe that was more than that was happening at the Playboy well, Club. Well, and but, so yeah. I'll show you a picture later of like how that influenced, you know, some brainy folks in my family on how to, how to start making more money. Um, okay, so then this is another Hosai Guy ad. Again, egg rolls are finally here. But now they're big letters, delicious egg rolls. Right, and, and it's the world's most beautiful Chinese restaurant. Always lots of um, hyperbole. And you see the Saturday 3 a.m., they were like an after-hours bar. I mean, folks would go there after the theater because there were so many theaters in that area. Um, but also, folks would go there for like super late-night chop suey. Which continues to this day. You'll see in places like Miller's Pub, for example. You know, I mean, those are the places that were open for lunch and then all the way through into the late night crowd. There's Grandpa Harry. And Grandpa Harry. Uh, he, even though he came here when he was 18 and went to Crane High School, and his sisters who were born here would make fun of that, like he didn't speak English as well, he became like, they said, accentless. And he would force his kids to like always read those like Reader's Digest and Proof Your Vocabulary things. And my cousin, whose funeral I'm going to now, he, he, um, his name is Winston Irving Tan. And, um, and Grandpa Harry insisted on that because he was very into acronyms. So Winston Irving Tan, wit. His older brother, Alex, Alex Patrick Tan, apt. He's like, oh, you will always be apt. And you will always be witty if you have these names. Wait, so what's Monica's acronym? Uh, I'm just me, Monica Elising. Okay. Very so, appropriate. <laughs> so as Louisa was saying, the tiki thing, post-World War II, like the tiki thing just took off. And suddenly Chinese restaurants became associated with umbrellas in your drinks and coconut drinks and girls in hula skirts. Um, so my, my uncle, great-uncle Wayne and uh, Grandpa Harry had South Pacific right next to the Oriental Theater. And that was all, you know, poo-poo platters and flaming things, um, along with, you know, your, your egg foo young. And it's just interesting to me that that whole like South Pacific thing became so associated with um, Chinese culture. There was the South Pacific, the, the Guam outpost. It was very popular. And actually, that stuck around until the late 70s, in fact, early 80s, when State Street had gotten a little seedy at that point. 
But William Holden, Clifton Webb movie, Satan Never Sleeps, who, like, Wait, so this is right next to... That's Oriental. Or, or, okay, so this is the old Oriental, now the Nederlander, so this is right yeah. along. So that is amazing. That is so, amazing. 1943, the repeal of the Chinese Exclusion Act, yay, finally! You know, we don't have to lie to get our sons and daughters in. We don't have to pretend that... So my grand, great-grandfather was one of the people who said, in the 1912 um, earthquake in San Francisco, guess what? All my papers burned up, um, and I'm really a citizen, so I can bring kids over. Everyone did it. Okay, everyone was doing it. And I always say that I can't be, you know, one of these hardliners on immigration right now, because I wouldn't be here if, you know, everybody followed all the rules. Right. Let's not get into the because that's a whole. Yeah. Rules are very. So 1943, uh, it was it wasn't a total um, opening of of Chinese immigration, but it was a little bit, and then it it grew even bigger in 60, like 65. So so do you see Bob Newhart? He decided to come to the opening of the Eight Immortals Club at Hungfa Village, which was another one of our restaurants we opened in the Loop on Wabash. Um, to take advantage of the, the fetishization of Asian women. And the, the, we noticed the Playboy Club always had tons of people coming out. So we started key clubs. So if you are a special member, you could go in the back and be entertained by ladies. And our family's like, well, they never had to do anything they didn't want to do. So I'm not saying what they did. And actually, a lot of the women at the time, because of immigration, um, they were Korean women and Filipino women. It's interesting. So that was another restaurant that my grandpa uh, invested in and did a joint partnership with Shangri-La um, downtown. And then Lincoln and Tuffy, <laughs> <laughs> right across from the Purple Hotel, uh, that was Ho King Lo. That was uh, one of the last of my Uncle Wayne's restaurants. Um, and do you see, this is not a matchbook. Do you see what it is? Silicone eyeglass tissues. This was really very Ahead progressive. Of time. Yeah. We give you eyeglass tissues. Because when you're studying so hard, you wear glasses or contacts the way I do because they're progressive and they're much better for me. But anyway. I, I, I got all these plates from Ho King Lo that they were in my cousin's garage. And I was like, they're, they're beautiful Jackson, uh, China. Um, okay, so once the 60s started opening up, once late 60s, early 70s, once we started getting Taiwanese immigration, like really um, advanced scholars from Taiwan and some from the mainland, you started seeing places like House of Hunan. You started seeing food that was not like Cantonese food that still would cater to Americans, but uh, was a, a little closer to what you actually saw in China, and we were like, whoa, Specifically regional food. Chinese food was starting to come right. over rather than only uh, Chinese-American food. But and we still that, loved our egg egg. rolls. We still loved our egg rolls. And see the hands over there, that's Fanny Go. That's Tom's widow. She's 93, I believe, and still going strong, still mixing her egg rolls by hand. And I, so I did a story. And she, you know, she admits, she's like, we never had anything like this in China, but our neighbors love it, so we make it for the block party. And so you got more, so then, then you get more re places like Lao Sichuan, and you got like, you know, people saying, what, how many chilies are you going to use in this dish? And those you are people the chilies. <laughs> like Tony Hu. And Tony, he was great. He was great. He opened up so many restaurants. But, uh, you know, like my people, he, you know, he would sometimes do stuff that wasn't entirely legal. Um, so he... He uh, went to he jail for He was, years. as many people know, the bit starter, uh, the, the owner of the Lao Sichuan restaurant empire. And then he was and also then the known Laos. as the uh, unofficial mayor of Chinatown. Uh, he was caught 
uh, fixing the books. And so he served his time. He served his time, and now he's out, and he's um, back uh, stronger than ever. He's actually opening up a new Lost Sichuan, apparently, in Highland Park. Oh, sweet. Yeah. Okay, um, and so now, uh, so, so that's where we are in Chinese food now. We've got a lot more regional stuff. You get all these, like, really wealthy Chinese students coming in demanding really good Chinese food, and that has created a whole new uh, spectrum of food available for everyone to try. But it's, it's catering, again, largely to Chinese, which is really interesting. So Chinese food for Chinese, Chinese food for non-Chinese, now Chinese food for Chinese again. But just in terms actually, of like... I don't think that there... I think now you're that. starting to see a little... A, a broader spectrum. It's not only yeah. just separate restaurants. Right. So, um, so, so, what is the legacy? Well, I asked this intern we had. Her name is Mackenzie Crossan. She's right there. She's very sweet. She was a curiosity intern. We went to Vito and Nick's because that's what she wanted to do for her last day. And I said we were all going around the table like, what, not Chinese. When you go back home for Thanksgiving, what are what do you miss? Like, what's the one thing you want? Your mom's apple pie. And she told me she wanted the almond chicken from the Golden Dragon restaurant in this tiny town of Oxford, Michigan. That's what it looks like. That is the um, almond chicken. The one it's in basically the middle. a giant McNugget. So the one in the middle, as Monica dismissively describes it, actually is more commonly known as the ABC, the almond boneless mm -hmm. chicken. And it is a specialty in the Detroit area. We actually find it in a few places in the Midwest, so but I it's really her about mostly it. known there. And let's see, is this one? So our hometown of Oxford, Michigan, um, has a very small downtown strip, but there's this Chinese restaurant called Golden Dragon, which is every single time we go home, whether it's just me, whether it's just Nicole or both of us, we always have almond chicken. And we get these quarts of almond boneless chicken, and it comes with this yellow, <laughs> kind of toxic-looking gravy. <laughs> And With white just like rice. three green onions floating in it together <laughs> for everyone's birthdays. Pretty much, it's just like every time we come home, it's just a thing we do with our family. I had my mom's surprise 60th birthday party there. We um, did. Just we I don't did. know. We just love it. We so love. What would you say to like uh, Chinese food snobs who are like, "Oh my god, that's not the way it's, it is in China." Does that matter at all? Hmm. I would say that. They're right, and that, but I don't think that's the point of it. I think it's 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 its own thing entirely. And also, do you think anyone in the town knows the difference? <laughs> well, I also wonder if part of the reason of uh, the people who own the restaurant creating a dish like almond chicken is to sort of like bridge cultural gaps to get people like my brother who would only eat chicken fingers and french fries to come in to the Chinese restaurant and just like, oh, maybe while they're here, mm -hmm. they'll have an egg roll and some wonton soup. And and then, oh, they're trying something new. And I don't know, we're, we're bridging gaps. So I think that is in the end, you know, this, this, this effort to please has also, I think, bridge gaps between the Chinese community, which was largely, you know, isolationist for many periods, discriminated against, and there were official laws against them, and the American public. So that's why people, you know, talk to Louisa and me when they're outside. <laughs> they, they don't mind us anymore. Um, and so, I mean, do, do you think that, that, that it played a large role, this, this effort to, to make a go of the business? Oh, and I totally forgot to tell you. Let's go back to 1920s. Oh, boy. One of the reasons why we saw a huge explosion in Chinese restaurants is because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. It had four, three or four types of people who could come into the United States. Students, diplomats, 
and merchants. And when they finally um, redefined merchants as a restaurant owner, then suddenly everybody and his brother was like, I'm a restaurateur, I'm gonna open up a high-end restaurant in the United States. And so that was another one of the reasons why we saw this explosion in Chinese restaurants, because that was one of the only ways Chinese could immigrate to the United States. Not only high-end restaurants, though, but then well, also... Well, it's at a certain level of restaurant. They, they, they wouldn't allow you to do it if it wasn't a certain level of quality. And two white people had to vouch that you were not the worker, but you were the owner. Um, and so they traded off who was the owner and manager. And finally, I want to say, hey, Winnie, my cousin who passed away last week. We, I took him out for his birthday at Sunwa. And actually, there's Keith. Yeah. He, he was a great source for me on what it was like to work in Chinese restaurants growing up. He took me to the Hip Sing Tong just around the street. He said, oh, you want to know what Hip Sing? I used to drop off my dad there all the time. And so he knocked on the door for me, and nobody answered, but he was, he was brave enough to say, I'll introduce you to the gangs, Monica. And so rest in peace, Winnie. We're dedicating our talk and our yeah. day, and hopefully your, all your next meal to your cousin Winston. And uh, we sorry we had to fly through a century yeah. of history like that, but, mm -hmm. um, but absolutely. So we were talking about then not only with the high-end restaurants at that time, but it's because then they could actually have businesses to hire lots of people, and then a lot of those people ended up being families, and that continued as a legacy all the way up until today of Chinese Chinese American restaurants, and the new generation of Chinese American restaurants that are not owned by anyone who is Chinese. <laughs> oh, that's a whole other story. Right. That Which dude is in exactly Minneapolis. What we're, yeah. Okay. So and so so the the point this kind of all started because in our podcast I would always say, oh God, don't talk to me about chop suey or egg foo young. It's not a real cuisine, Louisa. And she would always defend it. And I've come around to the idea, just like my friend Mackenzie, that it may not be what people ate when they lived in China, but it, after 150 or more years, it has become its own thing, it, uh, just as everything does. There is no one, you know, true, pure cuisine. It always adapts to what's available, to the cultural influences that come in, to what you need to do to survive. Of course not, Monica. We are in Chicago, where three of our most iconic foods are the Chicago-style hot dog, which has nothing to do with the kind of hot dog that you might have in Germany, the Chicago-style pizza, which has nothing to do with any kind of pizza you might have in Naples, as well as the Italian beef, which has nothing to do with any sort of Italian-style sandwich that you might have in Italy. So it makes sense that there is identity of Chinese American food, but especially here in Chicago, where again, we discussed it a little bit and you're gonna taste some of the Chicago style of chop suey. It is culinary innovation. We're lucky we've got over a hundred and something years. We don't need it, but we're lucky that we've got it here and we're gonna to continue to grow. And the dismissive tone that Monica had about the non-Chinese people who own Chinese American restaurants, I'm all for it because again, you, Yourself, who is only half Chinese? No, I shouldn't say only. Who Whoa, is half Chinese? Now it comes out. No, no, no. I should. Who is half Chinese? But you don't need to be half Chinese. Hapa it, it, is, it is actually a cuisine that is maybe best appreciated by people who don't have that kind of a baggage and feel like they need to prove something, something else. For example, one of the hottest new restaurants that's going to be opening here in Chicago is called Chef Special. 
by the chef who owns Giant Restaurant, which is a fantastic farm-to-table restaurant in the Logan Square area. And then Stephanie Izard's Duck Duck Goat, she who is the top chef. And it's fantastic. And she calls it, I think she calls it something like reasonably authentic. I'm like, honey, you could just drop the reasonably authentic. You know, it's like, it is what it is. It's Chinese-inspired food, and that's all terrific. And I'm all, I'm all for it, and bring on more. Absolutely. Yeah. So, so the question is, let's say my cousin, Winnie, uh, where would he go um, to eat Chinese food? He was thoroughly Chinese-American, and so he liked going to, um, to Sunhua, and we would order bitter melon and clams with blank bean sauce, but he, um, he kind of loved embracing his Americanness. And, and you know, if I say anything in Cantonese, my few words to him, he's like, oh, come on, don't say that. Um, Wait, why? <laughs> I don't know. You know, a lot of, well, maybe not you, but a lot of Chinese-American kids rebel against their parents' Chineseness and then try to become the opposite. I think that that's very generational and then also maybe about where they were raised. Your cousin Winston was 69? 69. So very young, very young. You know, so, but of a generation, I think that a lot of the Chinese parents really, you know, wanted their kids to be super American, speak English, don't speak Chinese at home. And we're a little bit of that half generation younger. You know, I wish I would have been forced to go to Chinese school when my brain was still a sponge, you know, and now in my 50s trying to learn uh, how to read. I speak Cantonese, but how to read and write Chinese, oh my gosh, you know, I'm trying to revive some of those brain cells, you know. So it's it's a really different thing. But And he, he was born here? He was born here, born in Hyde raised, Park. Uh, and was raised where? In Hyde Park. Okay. Yeah, because they had but their restaurants. But not in Chinatown, which is a big deal. No, my family, for some reason, we were never folks who lived in Chinatown. Um, my grandpa, during the Depression, one of his... Um, so my great-grandpa lived on Jackson Street, and the, I can, the, the Greystone's still there, uh, near our, our, a lot of our places in Garfield Park. Um, my grandpa, during the Depression, one of his customers had to like offload his house uh, for cash, and so in the 30s, they moved into this giant mansion on Pine Grove uh, near Clarendon. You know, there are only three houses on the block because the houses are so big. And then Hutchinson, Hutchinson um, between uh, uh, Clarendon and... Hazel. Yeah. You all probably know better than Monica does. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, I, so suddenly, like, these Chinese people move in, and everyone's like, what the heck is with all these Chinese? And there's seven Chinese kids running around. But they didn't kick us out. Um, and that's funny. One of the things that Monica and I share is that our families were primarily not Chinatown residents. And I know that from my grandfather, who was responsible for bringing a lot of our family members over, is because he didn't... He was a school principal in China uh, at 24 years old. He did not have patience for a lot of the politics. He just wanted to get things done, get on with business, raise his family, and get edu- educated. And there's a lot of, um, as we all know with smaller communities, you know, a lot of politics that happens. But responding to that question, we have a segment. It's, it's not a very frequent segment on our podcast. It's called What Chinese People Eat When Chinese People Go to Chinese Restaurants. And... <laughs> It's basically for those. We, we did three. We did Linda Yu. We did my friend Wen. Um, we were, I was going to go out with my friend Yuan. And it's basically, you know, for the idea that, like, okay, so we like this, but what would someone else order? And so Linda Yu ordered something called, um, and then correct me, is it ham yu? It's the, um, it's it's ground um, pork and yeah. then fermented fish. 
And and well, the ham yu is literally the salty fish, salty fish and is typically made then into steamed steam pork, pork patty. Yeah, like a, a, imagine if it was kind of like a meatloaf, basically. Sometimes it smells lightly like fish sauce, and sometimes it smells like something just died. Um, no, and, and I, I <laughs> like it a lot, but it's funny because my dad, that. I would ask him, it's like, well, what did your mom cook you when you're growing up on Hutchinson? Oh, she had this like pork loaf thing she would make all the time. The, and, that kind yeah. of essentially a meatloaf was yukbang, and then you can add the salted fish hamyu, which is optional. So, but yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. It's, it's very it's delicious, very... especially over rice. I remember at my uncle Wayne's funeral, you know, I was at the kids' table, and I'm like, what's this? It stinks so bad. Why'd you order it? And they're like, it was Uncle Wayne's favorite. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, getting back, what, so, so what was so, Winston's? Yeah, what would Winston so, have So, loved? like, when we went to Sunwa, we, you know, we did you know, Fuqua, um, That's bi- you. bitter melon. No, right. he ordered bitter melon with, with beef. He ordered, he wanted fried rice, which is fine, you know, you can argue. Of course it was fine. <laughs> um, and we did, we did the duck special. But you were saying he was more of a Chinese American. He was much fan. more Chinese yeah. American. He like so, he didn't even like to go to Chinese restaurants, like because he grew up. Yeah. That's all he got to right. eat. I said, you know, what did you have? He's like, we always our parents just always brought home food from the restaurant. Right. That's all we ever ate, and so I wanted to get away from it. So I'm guessing that the sort of Chinese-American food fan that he was, as was I, was then he would have to get the peanut butter egg rolls. He would probably get an egg foo young. And I had actually a big fan of it, had a recipe in the Tribune a couple of years ago, and he probably would get something like a, you know, a chow mein, you know, I mean. But chow siu bao, he, you know, he he, he never ordered chow mein. Yeah. It's like, so, like, I'm going to pick up, or my mom picked up a ton of Chasu Bao for his reception mm-hmm. after this. And do I all know what Chasu Bao is? It's a, yeah, it's, it's a uh, barbecue pork, barbecue bun. pork buns. Mm-hmm. And they can be steamed or baked. Well, and my daughter, it's funny, my daughter's only one quarter Chinese and she recently, like, Mom, she's like, she said, <laughs> she said, I'm going with my friends to Argyle and Broadway and I'm going to take them to the bakery um, and I'll, I'll tell you how it goes. So she went and she's like, I got steamed Chasu Bao and, um, and baked and they only liked the steamed and then I took them to Hong Ki, which is a Chinese barbecue restaurant and I got the siu yuk which is like um, roast pork so there's a crispy crackly top skin and siu, then siu fat yuk. siu yuk generally siu yuk. refers to just roast meat but and then yeah. and then like the meat and, and the fat then the meat and then I ordered smelts uh, salt and pepper smelts and clams and black bean sauce she's like they wouldn't touch any of it mom <laughs> she's like and I felt so embarrassed like you know that I'm this ethnic Chinese that everybody thinks is so weird. She's got like green eyes and her hair's purple and blonde at this point. So it was... Which is fine, you know? I never thought that like those were even challenging dishes. Which is fine. There are other ones that maybe they might have liked better, you know? So for example, like the pineapple bun, which is a sweet cookie crusted top. It looks like a Mexican concha. And actually I believe that there might be some history connected. But you know, the sweet egg tarts. So if anybody's going out for... Chinese New Year, Lunar New Year, those are typically one of the things to get, which is very traditionally confined, is um, usually this time of the year only um, at a lot of bakeries is the nin go, which is the steamed sticky uh, rice uh, cake. Uh, oh, I was thinking of the ones that are in the... So soup. so there's... No, so they're um, typically sweet and they're um, steamed in a big pan and you'll get them at some of the bakeries and they'll fry it up crispy, sometimes with an egg. So... But um, so, any so other let questions? us open up to yeah. questions formally right now, then, please. Yeah, I will repeat the questions. Yeah, and the lady in the back. So, what's the deal? Question is, what's the deal with the secret Chinese menus? And you know, and a lot of times it's not necessarily secret in that 
but it's only in Chinese, you know? And so we often will go into restaurants and see that there's one menu that is in English and another menu that's either in the same uh, printed menu that's in Chinese or sometimes posted on the wall. And it is more than anything just, you know, maybe some dishes that don't have a direct translation, maybe dishes that they think will appeal more to their uh, Chinese customers or Asian customers, not necessarily their non-Asian customers. And quite frankly, I think a lot of times it's just like not wanting to print up a whole nother menu, but Kathy well, has a comment. So Kathy was saying that she went to a Northbrook restaurant where they had a Chinese menu, and then when you finally got them to give you the Chinese menu, you got it, they sat you in a corner because they didn't want you to see it. But, and so what was the restaurant? The Szechuan place? A Chinese restaurant that was where Max and Benny's is. Okay, so it's closed. So, so a lot of times, yeah, you'll, it's just a matter of not having the time and place for the translation. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was mentioning with the relaxation. So the question is, what about that period when we started to see more sophisticated and regional Chinese food in the late 60s, early 70s, and into the 80s when everyone's like, mushu pork, Hunan cuisine? Um, that's when we saw an easing of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So in, the, in 43, 44, there was an original easing and then a much bigger one during that period. And then you would often see not just immigration um, from Taiwan and some from the mainland, but also a lot of students as well. And with that, you know, more food so they could introduce it to us, but people are also more receptive to it. But I'm going to challenge the word sophistication because as we saw, for example, with Monica's family's restaurants, those are pretty darn sophisticated looking restaurants. And it has really, I think, just a simply a difference of style, you know, a transition of styles. You know, we often talk about like, oh, that this is not good or not. But it's like we look at the fashions of clothing, for example, you know, what was in fashion at one point, maybe just transition to a different kind of fashion in another. So I think that there were sophisticated Chinese and Chinese American restaurants before that time, too. Okay, one question? Mm-hmm. Yeah. My, my, I had a bunch of relatives who were, in, oh, so, uh, um, were saying you recently learned about um, Chinese grocers in the Mississippi Delta. Uh, part of my family, part of the Sit family side, uh, were grocers in Arkansas, Mississippi, Tennessee. Yeah, Memphis. My, my Uncle Thomas had the Sit and Chew, rest, uh, sit and chew grocery stores in Memphis. No relation to me. Yeah, and so we must have been related uh, through the other Sit and Chews. Um, and they and initially they served as this go-between because after um, after the emancipation, a lot of white grocers would not serve African Americans, but the Chinese were these middlemen. No, so the question, the the, the comment is also in Jamaica, the Chinese had uh, a big part of the grocery industry. Same thing in Peru. Is uh, what's the largest Peruvian grocery chain? I want to say Wong's or something. <laughs> Uh, but wherever the Chinese were, um, they often got into the grocery biz. So who has the best regional stuff? Well, I mean, it's starting to close a bit, but for, so the question is talking about the regional uh, Chinese offerings in the different cities. In New York, I believe Flushing has the best and widest and newest immigrants, immigrants to keep uh, renewing the, the, the regional cuisine. Chicago and San Francisco were pretty Cantonese-ish for a while and didn't have that. I think we're seeing much more regional stuff in Chicago in the last 10 years. Sichuan, Hunan, Northern, Dongbei. Oh, who's got sort of the... I think New York's best. 
I think that's a really broad question. And what you're really seeing, though, is a lot uh, in the Los Angeles area. Oh, right. The San Gabriel Valley and then now even closer in. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah. It's basically the biggest so-called Chinatown areas in the United States. Um, in North America, you're really seeing it more in Vancouver. And I think that's really difficult to say. But yeah, as Monica was saying, that we had a lot of the immigrants who came in the early part of the century in the uh, southern Chinese area, Guangdong, uh, Guangzhou region, uh, around Hong Kong. And then, you know, we've seen some, uh, you know, like general immigration, but, uh, you know, it's such a, it's, I think it's such a broad question. We're seeing more regional cuisine reflected here, but certainly not to the fine-tuned detail. One thing that is always reflective to me is the lack of Dean Taifung here in Chicago, the home a, of the Chinese uh, soup dumplings. And so I can't believe with the, with the population that we have and the um, investment to me, that's like a real harbinger. That's a real and sign. We, so soup dumpling is a dumpling with soup inside. And Chicago has never had a great one. And so we're no, still No, there's been some great ones, but not at a big scale like the Dean Taifung restaurants. I did a story on soup dumplings, so you can see a guide to that in okay, the Okay, one there and then one there. To tag on to his question, is there a big difference between a chop suey joint in New York, Chicago, San Francisco, Seattle? Different hot dog, Coney Island, Chicago dog. People claim there's a Chicago, the question is, is there a difference in chop suey across the, the nation? I've heard, has anyone from Boston, where they serve something called chop suey, which is like, like spaghetti or something? I, a friend of mine is like, well, from Providence, they serve it in the lunchrooms, and I'm like, what? And for some reason, they call it chop suey. So that's very different. But we've heard that there's the Chicago style. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, I haven't heard of any, like, St. Louis style or L.A. style. I mean, there are, like, specific, like, we were talking about the ABC, the almond boneless chicken, in terms of dishes, which is more in the Detroit area. There's a Springfield, Missouri chicken, which is kind of like chicken nuggets in a brown sauce, and that was really a take on the uh, country fried steak, for example. But you're speaking just um, about chop suey, or? But in chop, in chop suey terms, one of the things that you'll see, for example, in Seattle, there was a place that I went to, the oldest Chinese-American restaurant in Seattle, which had a crab chop suey and crab egg Fu Young. And so, you know, you'll see regional influences in terms of the cuisine, but uh, not like such a specific hot dogs. That is like the ultimate, ultimate, right? You know, Sacrosanct. there's such, there's such specific regional ones, but not so specific, yep. except for the peanut butter egg roll, which is a very Chicago thing. Huh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So can I repeat some of that? Yeah. So, so the comment was how Chinese food, and the Chinese are pretty much everywhere in the world, have, has adapted itself to the local cuisine, the local ingredients available, the local tastes. And he was noting that in Belgium, they, were, they had to serve fries with the Chinese food. I actually, um, a friend of mine, Wen Wong, and I got together a book proposal we never submitted to have the, the publisher send us to Chinatowns across the world to try uh, to, to talk about sort of the origin of how the Chinese got there and then try one dish, similar dish across, and see how it was made in every place. Well, I was going to say that uh, Grace Young, the great Chinese-American uh, cookbook author, had a book where she did very similar research around the world, and I have to look up the title of the book later, but, um, you know, where she, for example, we'll talk about, like, the Chinese dishes that are in Jamaica, the Chinese dishes that are in Europe, the Chinese dishes that are around the world, and really how they vary, so, and, yeah. Yeah, Grace so, Young actually so Grace spoke Young about spoke that with the culinary historians, yeah, So, more terrific. questions? Yeah. 
Oh, so so what happened to all of our restaurants? We had at least a dozen restaurants from 1920 to 1987. The last one, House of Ang and the Del Prado Hotel, closed in 87. Auntie Joni and Uncle George just wanted to retire. Yeah. No, Alec is a lawyer in uh, L.A., and Winston was a guitarist. He's a classical guitarist. He was a classical guitarist in Hawaii. So yeah. there was a story in the New York Times um, a couple of weeks ago, and it's about economic mobility, you know, and so... We have then now who uh, immigrants who came in, created economic stability, and then the next generation, this mobility to move out of the restaurant business, which is historically low margins, unless you were really able to capitalize on that in booze and otherwise, maybe cannabis legalization. I'm just saying. A key but, club. Um, yeah, key club. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, but now we're seeing that coming back now in other generations. Here in Chicago, one of my favorite new restaurants, which I'm going to be visiting, I wrote about it a little bit, called uh, Lao Pengyo, or uh, good old friend, yeah, exactly. So Lo, Lo Pengyo and, and Cantonese, it is two Chinese brothers who grew up in the southwest suburbs who are opening a non-specific, not like necessarily Chinese regional restaurant, but like restaurants that are inspired by the stuff that they open, or, or what they grew up with. One of the dishes, the scallion pancake, terrific. Not really traditional, but really fantastic. More Chinese and Chinese American, and um, an amazing kind of fascinating thing you're seeing so now in other cities. Constantly evolving. Yeah. Any. Uh, oh, so it's in Ukrainian Village on Chicago Avenue, just west of Damon. And look. Call them before you go because they're so busy that they're constantly selling out of their dumplings and their noodles, which they hand make, and they'll close early, open late, they just cut off a day, and I'm like, and I told my parents about it, and they're like, how do they do business? And I'm like, well, Not they're doing it. People. They're doing it, they're, they're really busy. Question. Louisa would know more about that. Yeah, so this was actually oh, fascinating. Oh, so the question is, what's the difference between carry out and sit down Chinese restaurants? Yeah, so it's funny actually, I was just talking about this on um, our friend Justin Kaufman's show on WGN, about how the Chinese, uh, Restaurant margins, I was saying, really low. One of the new things that's come up in the restaurant world is deliveries. Deliveries typically take 30% of a check. And Chinese restaurants, though, early what on... Is, what does that mean? Oh, 30% so of the orders yeah, they get are delivered. So if you're calling, like, through... If you're ordering through, like, Grubhub or something like that, um, look, it, in general, 30% is typically... If you're doing a good restaurant business, that's all the profit that you're making. You're going to you buy have $30. You to give that to the service. Typically, here's the thing. You're going to order like a $30 meal, right? Typically, at a restaurant, they have spent like $20 making your meal, having the restaurant, you know, they're maybe pulling $10 out of it, right? That's all that they're making out of your $30 meal. Now, with a lot of delivery businesses, that $10 goes right to the delivery business. And so the restaurants, a lot of times, don't even make money on delivery through like the big companies. Early on, though, Chinese restaurants were some of the earliest delivery businesses. Winston had to deliver stuff on his bicycle for his parents. I had to walk. I had to walk and deliver food. And I one time walked the wrong way. <laughs> and, it was the and luckily, my mom and dad saw me, and they picked me up, and I was just so dejected. You know? But in any case... It was all about you know, accommodating the customer, right. giving them what they want. And it was a really good business. So some of the early delivery businesses here in Chicago were pizza, father and son, on the northwest side of Chicago, as well as Chinese restaurants. Because it, and it's kind of a funny thing to think that stuffing food into boxes and then delivering it to your house would be a good business, but it was. And actually, that was That's one of the That's how the, the Leaky Pail Company um, developed in Chicago. The they, Leaky Pail. The, yeah. The, the, the iconic take-out boxes. Yeah. But um, 
But typically, that is one of the last strongholds of the mom-and-pop Chinese American restaurants is that they will have their own people delivering that they won't actually be going through some of these delivery no companies. Yeah, so a lot of times, like my favorite neighborhood place, it's the guy who owns the place and cooks, and he'll deliver it to me himself when I don't feel like cooking myself. And that is the only way that they're able to make money off of it because otherwise, it's the big companies I can stick who are taking all the money. A couple more questions. Mm. Right. So, how did the peanut butter and the egg roll start, and where? I just know it was at our family restaurants. I was told it was a binder, and that's that's and it was it bound things and it gave a nice flavor. It's not a binder. It gives nice flavor. So I. I well, did. Yeah, my Auntie Joni would disagree. Yeah, Auntie Joni, who was uh, towards the end of a long history. So I actually had done a big why story about why do egg rolls taste like peanut butter here in Chicago? The easy answer, of course, is yes, there is actually peanut butter in the egg rolls. As far as why, I heard the stories about like it was a binder. There isn't that much of it that goes in there that acts as a binder. I've also heard stories that it was used to stick the wrappers together. No, it doesn't. And typically, then, it was just going back to all these different sources, and I finally found the one guy who I thought, I thought was the inventor of the peanut butter egg roll. He was the guy who actually invented the Springfield chicken down in Missouri. I call him, right, Springfield cashew chicken. So it's also, so he is in his late 90s now, talk about longevity. I finally got him on the phone and I talked to him, I was like, so did you invent the peanut butter egg roll? No, <laughs> he did not. But he was the earliest source that I could find and he said that it was being done at restaurants in Philadelphia right around World War II. And he's not sure about maybe why, maybe it was just used as extra flavor, maybe because of wartime shortages. And he was the one who actually then brought it back to the Midwest. And from there, we think, I think, I don't know for sure, it maybe traveled up north along with his cashew chicken, his cashew Springfield chicken, and then ended up hitting in Chicago, which is of course the biggest city and the biggest hub of Chinese American restaurants in the Midwest, and then, but otherwise, you don't really find peanut butter egg rolls that commonly outside of the Chicago area. So um, I think Monica's got to go. And okay, so uh, one more question here. Yeah. Okay, so the question is for a good neighborhood carryout, dine-in. What's a good restaurant? It depends on what you mean. Um, my favorite right now is Chengdu Impression because I really love Sichuan food, and that's across from Kingston Mines. It's uh, on Halsted near, I want to say, Wrightwood, the cross street. Um, and it's just, I really like their, um, their Szechuan food. They're an acolyte of Tony Hu, I believe a nephew of Tony Hu. I love, I think the best dish in the city is the um, fermented bean curd and peanuts and chili oil appetizer. We yeah. get like two of them or three every week and the kids just like steal them. I want to say Wrightwood is the cross street. So that kind of indicates such the, you know, the, the great breadth of all of the great Chinese food that is out there, Chinese food, Chinese-American food. I recently went to, of all places, Schaumburg. There is a restaurant that opened there called Fat Fat, P-H-A-T, P-H-A-T. And it is owned by the owners of Imperial Lamyan here downtown. And they're doing everything from like your lunch special type deals all the way to Shenzhen Bao, which is the is it fried... Good? It is good soup it's dumplings. It's like a soup dumpling that's a crunchy bottom. Yeah, and, and tons I thought, of soup. 
And I thought, boy, this would be so fantastic if this was my local neighborhood Chinese takeout. So who knows? Maybe they'll expand a little bit more into the city. So, um, Chad, I can take your question. Right. I mean, everybody's got a different uh, thing. Yeah. Right. Well, it's a prosperous world is a good world. Mm -hmm. <laughs> any any Chinese speakers want to tell me? Okay. Good right. world. Pro we love prosperity. So if it's prosperous, it's good. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Yes. In the front. Chop suey. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Me too. So the question is, where do we go for the old-fashioned Chinese-American food? Cow Cow was a favorite. Yeah. Ah, so press stuck was a favorite there. Have Have you been to Mima? Mima doesn't do it for you. So similar in oh, so similar in style. Yeah. So um, sorry, which one? Your Orange Garden. Yeah, Orange Garden's definitely got the ambiance. It is what is the oldest extant. Yeah, uh, restaurant, yeah, Chinese yeah. It's restaurant, the oldest Chicago. Chinese uh, restaurant here in Chicago right now. So, right, yeah, yeah. we can talk about that more. We have to thank Monica so much yes, for I'm taking sorry, time out stay. from her family today, and thank you all so much for coming. And thank you so much, Culinary Historians, uh, for having. Well, Louisa us. will keep you company. Yeah, I'm gonna keep coming because it smells really good. Thank you so much. Oh, okay. So you are going to be tasting a Chicago style old-fashioned chop suey. So as I mentioned earlier that um, a lot of times you'll think about chop suey with bean sprouts and like the more finely cut. Well, Kathy and I were discussing this and my favorite is the old cow cow style, old-fashioned chop suey, which was basically chunks of pork, celery, and onions. And um, my... Oh, so you like the pan-fried noodles. See, I'm like a rice eater. You know, I, I like both, actually. <laughs> so but um, so uh, Kathy made that and then also made Fanny Goh's peanut butter egg rolls for us to taste. Uh, so you made the char So Kathy made the char siu, which is the uh, barbecue pork that goes into the egg rolls, and Deb made the egg rolls. And so, um, again, a warning for anyone who has peanut allergies... There's peanuts, peanut butter in there. So thank you all so much again. Oh, yeah, sorry, hold on. <laughs> uh, Peter Engler would just like to make a very quick announcement. So um, I just wanted to say that I brought in some, uh, no uh, some menus from my collection and some postcards, quite a few postcards, some pretty interesting menus. There's one from about 1910 from uh, King, King Joy Lo. Um, there are two. Um, and then also, I mean, there are a bunch, you'll see them. And uh, uh, a 1930s Wan Kao, which is pretty interesting. Oh, yeah. uh, just closed you know, in Chinatown in Chicago. And I think, it, I, think I have the very first uh, tiki drink menu uh, in Chicago. Um, so anyway, so there, there, there are a bunch of others. So after you've, after you've eaten, uh, try to degrease a little bit. <laughs> And um, I'll, I think I'll spread them out here, up here. So stop by and look if you're interested. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much, Peter. Oh, boy. Thank you all so much again. Yes. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry. One more announcement. But get in line. Yeah, yeah. Here. Oh, hey, Sue, why don't you come up over here? Why don't you come up over here? Good morning. My name is Sulan Moy. I'm with the Chinese American Museum of Chicago. And with me here is Susan Nimoy. She's on our advisory board also. And I am very excited about uh, Luisa's and Monica's talk today. And um, I want to let you know that we are working on our next exhibition, 
uh, which will open in October. And it's about the Chinese American cuisines, the history of it. And, and then we would love for you to come in and visit, visit us. And Monica referred earlier to, uh, to the cooking demonstration that we had for the Chinese railroad builder um, that they hire their own cook to cook for themselves. So unfortunately that um, exhibit is, is closing tomorrow. So hopefully you might have time today or tomorrow to come down and visit it, okay? And I do have a brochure that I can leave here with you. Thank you. Thank you. Perfect day for the museum. Yeah. Thank you so much.